Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, prayer for spiritual strength. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Great to be with you all. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Howard. I'm clearly one of those people who hasn't yet managed to get a haircut. I'm <laughs> feeling slightly like a wild beast here, but excited to be able to talk to you from Ephesians chapter 3. Great to have some new people with us this morning. You are so welcome to be joining us. Great to have you watching online as well. We've been in this chapter for some time, but sorry, in this letter for some time, uh, working through the whole of Ephesians this this year, this amazing first century letter, I want to start by asking you some questions. Have you ever felt misjudged? Have you ever had moments in your life where you feel like um, people just haven't seen you for who you really are? They look down on you. They think lesser thoughts than you feel are worthy of you. They think that you're far less capable than you actually are. I would hazard a guess that that is everybody in this room that we've all had that happen. We all will have that happen. My point is, how much more so is that with God? Paul is writing this six-chapter letter in the first century to a not just a city in, in Ephesus, which is now modern Turkey, but to a whole region of churches surrounding that. And he's divided this letter into two parts. There's chapters one to three, and then there's chapters four to six. And we today are reaching the end of chapter three, the, the end of the first part. And the first part is the foundations. It's all about what really is the Christian faith all about. And then from chapter four, we go on to work out how do you live out these great truths? How do you build on this foundation? foundation. What does it mean to walk in love with Jesus Christ? So there are important words for us to get hold of. He's concluding an amazing section in this superb, superb letter. He finishes with this great doxology of praise. It's doxology that reads like a, a hymn. It means a hymn of, of praise to God. He's excited. He's bursting with passion for the God that he loves and worships. And the key to that is he's excited about the more of God, that there's more in God. And today I believe that God wants the more of God to move deeper into your heart. So I've got four points that I'm going to make today from this passage. You'll have it open in front of you. Chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Four points which are going to help you to hope more, believe more, trust more, and pray more expectantly to our awesome God. The first point is this. God is able. Verse 20 begins saying... 
to, to him who is able, that God is always able. There's no buts, there's no maybes about this God. He is able to do what? Immeasurably more or more abundantly than all you could ask or even imagine. Here's the challenge though. So often we like to Susan Boyle God. What do I mean by that? Well, some years back now, a woman called Susan Boyle stood on the stage of Britain's Got Talent. She looked very unimpressive, very lacking capability. She was mocked and ridiculed by the crowd. They jeered her. They thought she was going to be so awful and horrendous at her singing. And then she sang. And they all ate humble pie. And then she went on to hit a world record for debut albums sold. My point is, she was way more capable than people gave her credit. And I think we do the same with God. I think we limit God. I think we think that he's not capable. I think we have lesser thoughts about God than we should. And that's something that actually we need to confess and repent of. Not with like heavy introspection and you attack yourself and you, you kind of criticize and condemn yourself like that. No, but with, with hope of liberation and joy that you're coming to the God who is more, more loving, more forgiving, more generous, more gloriously joyful than you imagine. And he wants to forgive you of sin and through this to deepen your relationship with him as you get hold of how much more there is in God. I said relationship with God there, didn't I? So important. I wonder if there are people in this room or online, you don't yet have a relationship with God or your relationship with God is like you're on a break. <laughs> um, you're not in, in a good place with him. I want to encourage you to really listen and engage as best you can. Towards the end of this message or rather the service, there'll be a moment online where you can request prayer. If you're in the room, get the app out, watch online, hit the request prayer button. You can respond and one of our team can help you rebuild, restore, start afresh or anew for the first time, a relationship with God. But right now what we're going to do, we're going to start to unbox God. Another picture that I had about this was uh, uh, this week I was opening our kitchen drawer. And uh, in our kitchen drawer, if you can excuse the mess, I don't know if we have a picture of this, um, there is a little baby Jesus from a nativity. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it there, just about, yeah, circled, um, zoomed in for you. Um, and I think that's what you can do with God. I think many people, Christian and not yet Christian, can do this. You put God in a drawer, you push him away. I've, are you a Christian? Yeah, I've got God in my life, but he's limited, he's small, he's not given the, the rightful place that he has. And often it's just, he's baby Jesus, baby Jesus. I want you to know that baby Jesus grew up to become a man who would die on a cross, who's not dead anymore. He's alive and present with me as I'm preaching, with you as you're listening, and he wants a relationship with all of us and a deeper relationship with each one of us. So let's, let's unbox this God this morning. Let's take him out of the drawer. Let's start to see him as he really is. God is able. Nothing is impossible for him. Now you need to know this. Because in the most challenging moments of your life, when the going gets tough, you'll feel like he isn't able. You'll feel overwhelmed. You'll feel like you're really struggling when the spiritual giants of your life come and they say, you can't do this. 
when you feel convicted and condemned by sin and wrong living and you've got angry and things have got wrong this week and you've lost your temper with somebody, you, you feel, is God, is God able to forgive you? Is God able to help you? You've got to have this written in your heart. So first point, God is able because he can create out of nothing. He can create out of nothing. The best explanation for your presence in this universe is in the beginning. God didn't come out of nowhere or nothing. Needed a creator. He can create out of nothing. That's ability. That's extraordinary ability. And then God is able because he can create stars. That's pretty impressive. But he doesn't just throw out a few stars. Oh, let me get, there's one or two just to impress you. He creates, get this, a hundred thousand million stars that are in our Milky Way galaxy alone. That is phenomenal. And then astronomers, I always get this wrong, dyslexic moment. Astrologers, astronomers. Astronomers, big difference. <laughs> astronomers would say that for every one of those hundred thousand million stars in our galaxy, each star represents a galaxy in the known universe with a not dissimilar number of stars within it as well. That is Oh, can you get your head around how awesomely powerful God is? It's amazing. God is able. And then he comes in his ability to want you to see that up close and personal as God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to our world that we might see him in history showing his power and ability. What is his first miracle? It's at the wedding in Cana. And the wine has run out. Massive issue for a culture that that is so hospitable, real humiliation for the, for the people throwing this, this wedding celebration. What does Jesus do? He comes to the rescue and he turns water into wine. H2O into alcohol, C2H5OH, carbon out of nothing, boom, molecules reorganized. And there you have wine. How much wine? Just enough to get by so they can finish the wedding. No, if you look carefully in John chapter 2, it's between 600 and 1,000 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's making a point, Jesus, God, about his ability. God is able. God is able. He can take five loaves and two fish and feed 15,000 men and women. Do you think he's making a point about his power and his ability in these miracles by chance? The disciples are like, we need to go to the shops. Like, we need an entire shop to come to us to feed these people. It's impossible. Jesus like, no, there's always more in God. There's always more in God. God is able. We've seen this recently as a church, didn't we? We asked for £250,000 for our building project in the middle of a pandemic, the fourth giving day for this project. People are already given unbelievably generously. We didn't just get £250,000, we got £311,000. God is able. It's phenomenal. This is miraculous. I tell you, if God wasn't able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, he by definition wouldn't be God. So what needs to change in your thinking about him today? The former minister here, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this, Surely our greatest trouble in the Christian life is our failure to realize that God is not man. The greatest sin of every Christian and of the Christian church in general is to limit the eternal, absolute power of God. So often we can be like Abraham and Sarah from 
the first book of the Bible from Genesis, God had spoken to this old, seemingly infertile couple that they would have a biological child of their own who would begin a line who would reverse the curse of sin and evil and darkness in this world. But year after year had gone by where where God hadn't seemed to, to deliver on this promise. And they were beginning to seem, God, we think that you're able. Theologically, doctrinally, we say, yes, you're able. But pragmatically, not so sure. So we're going to decide to think that, God, you need a bit of help from us. We're going to help you out here, God. And so we're going to come up with a way that this can happen. And Abraham's going to sleep with the servant girl, Hagar, and oh, disaster happens. We can be like that, can't we? Doctrinally, God, you're able. Pragmatically, no, you're not. You need my help. And here's what I'm going to do. We can live as if we think we're the ones who have to be able Now, yeah, we need a partner with God. He condescends to allow us to partner with him in mission. But I tell you, he doesn't need your help. (laughs) He doesn't. He's able on his own. He's complete. He doesn't need your help. But sometimes he lets you give him, seem like you're giving him help that he doesn't need, to give you a sense of meaning and purpose and value and usefulness to disciple you. I think one of the challenges that we have, and maybe you're thinking this right now, You're a bit like the the leper from the first century biography of Matthew. And this leper comes to Jesus' horrible condition that he's got. But he assumes that Jesus is able to heal him. And his question is, are you willing? Not a question of ability, but but of willingness. Maybe maybe that's, that's you. And you can end up getting to that place, even as a Christian, by approaching this verse... Verse 20 of chapter 3, God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. There's a sort of bumper sticker verse. You don't keep reading. It just stays there. And so your mindset is that God is there to help you to do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. In my career, thank you very much. In my finances, thank you very much. Immeasurably more in my aspirations for marriage. Immeasurably more just in the external circumstances all around me. And when God doesn't deliver as this kind of full sugar daddy ideal of God, you feel disappointed. Like, God, God, are you you not willing? You're meant to make my life like happy and joyful and do all these things that other people else have in the, in the world. I tell you, God is working to a much higher, holier agenda and a much deeper divine purpose than that. And that's the second point. You carry on reading verse 20. It says, To him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to the power at work. Where? Within us. Within us. This is extraordinary, that the all-powerful, the God who can create stars out of nothing, who can rearrange molecules from water to, to wine, is then saying that this power he has placed within us. Within us. Verse 16 of this prayer, if you back up a little bit, you'll see in chapter 3 that Paul is saying that we are to be strengthened with power. We're in our inner being for inner renewal and transformation, to be changed from one degree of glory from the inside out. Further evidence of how to interpret this comes from the very structure of of this first section, chapters 1 to 3. 
Paul writes in a poetic, it's called a chiastic structure. That basically means it's sort of mirrored sections that repeat all the way to a central core in chapters 1 to 3. I've mentioned this before, but just by way of recap, the doxology that we have here in verses 20 to 21 in chapter 3 mirrors and parallels chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And then you have within that two prayers that parallel each other that both begin with for this reason, the prayer of chapter 1 and chapter 3. And then the middle bit is the core and the heart of it about the oneness of Jesus Christ, the, the oneness, the, the mystery of Christ and the glory of reconciliation coming between man and God and Jew and Gentile being revealed. That's at the heart of Paul's, Paul's teaching that's going on there. And so now we're able to interpret verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3 in light of chapter 1. So they're basically a summary consolidated summary of what Paul is saying in chapter 1. What is that? Spiritual, invisible, more important, spiritual blessings at work inside you that change you. And when you are grounded in the truth of these, adopt it. Love, lavished with love, redeemed, forgiven. When you're grounded in the truth of those, they start to change you from the inside out to affect the way that you behave and the way that you live. It's right today to give you one particular example of how God does that. 500 years ago to this very day, God demonstrated the inner renewal work that he'd done in the life of a very anxious, angular, awkward monk. This was a monk who was so fearful at one point in his life, just a thunderstorm would have him falling and cowering around. And he believed that he had to confess every single sin that he was ever aware of. So he would go to confessionals for hours and those he was confessing to got angry and frustrated because the amount of time they were losing because here's this monk again confessing everything he could ever think of. This monk thought he had to beat himself up to attack himself, to condemn himself in order to be acceptable to God. But then he had a revelation and a breakthrough. And as you started to read the scriptures afresh, and particularly with the help of the early church father, Augustine, he discovered grace, that simply by faith, he had it all. He was already accepted, not based on his works, not based on what he did, but simply by believing. Like Abraham, he was accredited righteous by faith. It kind of hit him. I mean, he found grace, but grace really found him, and it changed everything. He started to challenge the church as he was making this discovery about its practice of indulgences in the day, where the church would be selling this idea, a piece of paper, an indulgence that if you got it, you could release or reduce the amount of time of your loved ones in a place called purgatory, a made-up idea of the church that when you die, you don't go, if you believe in Jesus, when you die, you don't, like the thief on the cross, go to be with him immediately in paradise. You go to a place called purgatory where you still have to suffer and earn off your, your pay off your debt for the wrongs that you've done. It's horrible. And that you could be released out of that by buying an indulgence. I mean, how arrogant, as if a piece of paper could do that. As if the church had that power and authority. One preacher was said to be going around raising money through the sale of indulgences for the rebuilding work of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome by saying, a penny in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. It was awful. The poor, uh, it was institutional oppression. 
was ugly and Luther hated it. He stood against it. He challenged it. It wasn't biblical. It didn't glorify God and it was horribly unjust. So what did they do? They labeled him a heretic. And they decided they were going to try him in a place called Worms. Became known as the, the Diet of Worms, not the Diet of Worms, awkward, but the Diet, the diet of Worms is a, is a place. And something like 80 princes and 120 counts, and actually nearly, they say, 10,000 people had kind of been added to this, this place called Worms for this hearing and this trial. And they were trying to silence, silence this monk. Of course, you probably guessed already, his name is Martin Luther. And the state and the so-called church had come together like they did in some senses against Jesus to persecute the true church. It's the pattern of history. It's the pattern of the book of Revelation. They wanted to shut this man up. And here he was taking on the might of the Roman church, phenomenally more powerful than it is today, the might of the state. Emperor Charles V was present at this hearing. Can you imagine? This once fearful monk, absolutely terrified, a bolt of lightning, a flash of thunder, and all the noise of thunder, rumble of thunder could terrify him. But now with his feet rooted in the assurance of the love of God, he has the test of his life. Will you recant any of your teachings? This is what he says. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recount anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Can you see the extraordinary inner renewal work that God had done in this man's life? They had the power to kill him. They had the power to take away everything in this world. But he was rooted and grounded in the love of God, in the spiritual blessings from chapter 1. That's what mattered. That gave him strength to this moment of defiance. And I believe that God is stirring each of us for our moment, even our lifestyle of holy defiance against the unholy alliance of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That God is able. There is a power at work inside you through faith in Jesus to overcome sin, to wrestle the sin of pride to death, to kill off all that anger, that, that evil anger, and all those temptations that come at you. You can resist them because there is this power available to you, to you from God to destroy doubt, to de defeat her pornographic temptation. You can stand against it because you are rooted in the love of God. This inner renewal is at work in you, changing you from the inside out. God is able, there's power to create a love in you where there wasn't a love before. Out of nothing creation, to love the most unlovely person imaginable, to reorganize your molecules inside you so that you can persevere and keep going, witnessing, even when people criticize you, condemn you, don't like you, you can even enjoy through this transformation inside, continuing to love them sacrificially. This is the work of transformation. What is this power like? 
Well, let's look at creation. I wonder if you have any ideas what the strongest animal is in the world. I did a bit of research on this. You can put your answers uh, in the chat at the moment. It's not an elephant. It's not a gorilla. It turns out, if my sources are correct, it's a dung beetle. A dung beetle. It can pull 1,141 times its own weight. That's amazing, isn't it? That's like you pulling six double-decker buses full of people. That's, that's power. But that's nothing compared to the God who made the dung beetle, who gave it that power. That power is derivative from the more powerful God who made it. Do you see that? And this God says, I love you a little bit more than a dung beetle. You're the pinnacle of my creation. So I'm going to give you a power fitting as an expression of my love for you. Paul goes on to describe the power in chapter 1. This power, he sets it out and says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And seated him far above every authority in this world. It's that power. And he's saying that power is inside you. The same power that raised you up from being dead in your transgressions and sins. And cut off from God. That this power makes you alive in that sense. And then seats you with Christ so that you rule and reign with him. You have that, that authority to reign in his kingdom with power. With power. This isn't just something that happens when you believe. Oh, there's a powerful moment in your life. You come to faith and then that's it. This power is available in an ongoing way to be able to be accessed so that you can stand firm against evil. You can take every thought captive. You can kill off sin in your life. You can love the most unlovely person because you have this power available to you. So the question then becomes, well, God is able... But the question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Not about God's willingness, but about your willingness to access the power he's already put inside you. Notice as well, it says within us, not within me. The real way to experience fully this power is in community. It's with others that you know this power. This power being ministered through the saints in the church to, to one another. You seeing this power as you care and minister towards others. It's in community within us. You will only fully experience and know this power as you are part of a committed church body and family. And the way that we turn this power switch on, it's through confession. It's through repentance. It's, it's through praying this way. Ephesians 3 prayer, getting hold of this prayer. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Say it out loud, scribe it, write it down, shout it out, sing this prayer out. That's the spirit with which Paul has written it. Can you sense his heart bursting with praise, bursting with adoration for his God, for what he's, what he's done? Do you want to join him? Is there something in you at this moment, even in this week, this day, where you have moments where you just you can't help but want to cry out in praise and adoration of this God? If that's you, hallelujah, praise God, do it. Don't let anything hold you back. But if it's not you yet, then get on your knees and pray. There's an invitation that God is encouraging you to pray, to warm up your heart, to know this power, changing you from the inside out. The third point is, to him be glory. To him be glory. This is how verse 21 begins. Honest moment of reflection. 
is your life a to him be the glory one or is it a to me be the glory one? Do you need to have a Copernican spiritual revolution? Back in the days, people thought that the earth was the center of the known universe because that's the planet that we're on, don't you know? And today, that's how many people think. I am the center of the universe and everybody else is just a kind of planet or asteroid. They're orbiting around me. I'm I'm the center of the attention. It's all about about me. And then there was this discovery that that's that's totally wrong. Everything is orbiting around the sun in in our solar system. And the same is true spiritually. Everything orbits around the S-O-N, Son, Jesus Christ. And you only truly find your sense of meaning and purpose as you start to move and orbit around him. Feel the pull of gravity in the right sense to know who you really are and how you fit in the world that he's made. The former minister here, another one, um, Dr. R.T. Kendall. He was a minister here for 25 years. He's written more than 50 books. And he would say that one of the keys to the sort of secret of his success is this verse from the first century written by one of Jesus' disciples, John, chapter 5, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? One of the greatest idols of our age that's just been supersized in recent times is the praise of people, living for the opinion of others, caring so much about what they think. People spend hours, they're often so anxiously fraught, managing their physical in-person appearance, managing their online appearance, filters, edits, controls, this photo, don't want you to tag me in that, don't want that on my, you know, on my, my main page, all this kind of stuff, you, you edit your CVs, you're controlling, shaping the environment, caring so much what other people think about us. Self-glory, preoccupation with self-glory, I want to encourage you to die, to resolve to die for living for the praise of people. To live only for the glory of God. And how do we do that? We do that by, be, by being willing to be humiliated. We do that because we're so confident that we are like Luther. We're grounded in the love of God that we care a lot less about what other people think about us and more about what he thinks about us and being obedient to him. I think we need to learn from the holy fools of history. It's actually a term that some people in history were called holy fools. Now, they maybe took it a little bit too far at times, but I think there's a lesson to learn from them. There's a Franciscan monk called Brother Juniper, and he was in the habit that if anybody came to him um, with a need and they asked something of him, or if he saw anybody in need and he had a way to answer that, he would just give them whatever he had, even if that meant his own clothes. So today, we think we call him the... The naked monk. I just imagine the awkwardness of this. If you're another brother with him, um, oh no, brother Juniper, he's done it again. Oh, I'm going to have to pray with him. He's naked, he's dark. Oh, it's awkward. Don't want to look at that. All of that kind of stuff like that. But there's a, there's a much greater form of, sort of awkwardness, and it's the spiritual awkwardness of here's a guy who's red hot for God, who cares so little of what other people think about him. He'll just be obedient to God. There's nothing restricting that. It's just like, God says it, I'm going to do it. I don't care. You think I'm going to be naked? I don't care. I'm going to be naked for the rest of the day and have people laugh, mock, and ridicule me, but I am serving him. There's something 
good about that provocation. I, I say the holy fools took it too far, but today we don't take it far enough. We have promptings from the Holy Spirit where God is saying, oh, we'd like you to do this, I'd like you to do that, I'd like you to do that. But we go, no, because that will make me look stupid. I'm too embarrassed. I don't want to do that. But when we're rooted and grounded in this love, when this work of inner renewal, this power is inside us, it's changing us. New desires are being put inside us so that we will be able to do that. I notice as well here, it's to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus. That these can't be separated. You can't separate Jesus from the church or the church from Jesus. They are bound together. Jesus is the head. The the church is the body. They come together. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Yet so many people are trying to separate these things. And you get the the Jesus only people. Maybe you know them. I I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. I tell you, I don't like that sentence. (laughs) Church is for me, it's well. Don't really do church. I, I, I just pick and choose like my favorite preacher. And I, oh, they're preaching on that. I like that. That'll, that'll help me. Or, and that Christian radio station, that's, that's kind of my church and stuff like that. And you basically become your own senior pastor without any accountability to anybody else. You've suddenly how created now the religion of one adherence. It's named after yourself. Uh, and there's no challenge. There's no critique. There's no stretching. There's none of that. It's just you on your own. I tell you, it's not right. You're separating what God always meant to be together. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got those who are all about the church. There's some kind of, maybe it's a social club to meet people. Maybe it's about tradition and institution and you love that. The smells, the bells, the rituals, the the rites of passage and all of that kind of stuff. Um, And it becomes about command and control ultimately where people get so stuck in the sort of the the time-bound methods of ways of doing church, that they stop worshipping the timeless God who gave them those methods in the first place and is giving new ways to reach the people of this day and generation. Christ without church is individualistic legalism. Church without Christ is just dead tradition. Are you fracturing them apart or are you part of fusing them together? I tell you, the church is the greatest demonstration of the glory of God to the world. It's in the church, collectively. This is the place where the irreconcilable get reconciled, where the rejected are accepted, where the unlovable are loved, where people's lives get transformed from one degree of glory to another as we push back the frontiers of darkness within ourselves and in this city. It happens through the church. God has designed the church to be the way that his glory is made manifest to the world. And it's as we come together in community that we see that, that we get to play a part in that. But how? Where's our confidence come from for that? Where does our confidence come from to pray this way, to be that if we pray this way, that the power will come? Well, it's from the final word of this prayer, the word amen. Amen. The word amen means more than you know. I love the word amen. I wish I heard the word amen more often when I'm preaching, to be honest with you. Um, I love listening back to sermons by 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And if you hear those sermons, you just can't help but hear in the background, you amen, amen, brother, preacher, brother, preacher, brother, come on, bring the word, brother, amen, amen, this communal atmosphere. And King would say his best sermons were drawn out of him through this relational connection to those who were listening with his amen corner, who were, who were encouraging and, and drawing out the word of God from him as he's preaching. So why in-person church matters? can't really do that online. I can't read at the same line what you're writing in the chat, by the way. I have no idea what's going on out there. We need to get back together. I'm so excited. Today was fully booked. We've only got a capacity of 30 at the moment. That's wonderful. But a time is coming when we will be able to gather in much larger numbers. And I want to encourage you to be there. Because God can really move in power so much more when his people are together in physical proximity together. That's where he moves. You can lay on hands. You can pray for healing. The spiritual gifts come alive. There can be tongues and interpretations in a way that, that can't happen. There's going to be hugs and fellowship and joy together. So I'm like, bring it on, God. We need to be back together in person. And I think part of this whole time apart is to stir in us a deep longing for that, that we would value and appreciate it so much more. The word amen means more than you know. It's not like, it's, it's, here's my full stop to my prayer. You know, I've done now. I've done my bit. You know, uh, I'm finished. That's your cue. Now your turn to pray. It means way more than that. It means truly, indeed, surely. It's a solemn declaration of the truthfulness of what you're saying. So Jesus himself actually, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, he is called the capital A, amen. He is the A, amen. He's the one through whom we pray. We pray to the Father by the Son. We pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So Jesus basically takes you by the hand and brings you into the presence of the Father before the throne of grace. We come boldly because we're coming through the Amen. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts this, 1563. This final question and answer of it is this. What does the word amen signify? Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of him. Did you get that? God is more willing to answer your prayer than you are desiring. This is the truth of the whole Christian life. It's not about you working to be good enough to be heard that God would respond. It's all of grace. It's all of his ability. That's our confidence in prayer. So even when you feel immeasurably weak in your prayer, he can still do immeasurably more because the amen is pointing you to that. It's about him and his ability. Surely this will happen because he is able. God is able to do immeasurably more than you know. He's more willing to do it than you know. And he's hungry, eager to do it right now in you. Right now. In a renewal and transformation. And so the main application of this message. Pray big prayers. For renewal inside you. For renewal amongst all of us. 
pray big prayers because it's probably sinful not to. Because you're thinking small thoughts about God. I want to finish with the words from John Newton. He is the transformed transatlantic slave trader who penned, wrote the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. And he said this as we come to pray. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you forgive us of our sin. And we want to confess today this great sin of limiting your absolute power to move in our lives. Forgive us now for thinking lesser thoughts about you than we should. And fill us with the more of God. Let the more of God move deeper into our hearts that we would know that you are able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine in our hearts, through our hearts. I pray today, create power and strength and love to kill sin, to be bold enough to kill sin, to stand firm against the world, the flesh and the devil and all its attempts to conform us, to squeeze us, to deceive us. Lord, help us to be people of holy defiance like Luther, anchored in your love, assured by your love, that we might see a phenomenal harvest of souls for your glory. Renew us, transform us. And Lord, we would pray big prayers that as you do that, Lord, that we would see and experience your power in a supernatural way. And that as we come back together in person, as this building reopens in October from the front steps, we would start to see dozens and dozens of people saved week after week, month after month, as they start to see a church alive in the power of God. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.